Well, good morning, everybody. I don't know what happened to our countdown clock. I guess the music is supposed to cue us that the time has come to start the message. So if you would head back to your seats and we will prepare to begin. And I just, just thanks so much for being with us this morning, particularly if you happen to be new or if you're checking us out online for the first time. We're really glad you decided to join us. If you are new, my name is Don. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and we are moving towards the end of a series we've been on for several weeks where we are teaching through the book of Daniel, and next week we'll conclude our series in that. And so today we're going to focus in on chapters 7 and 8 of Daniel, and the title of the message today is The End is Near, or is it? You know, my wife, Margaret, and I are different in a lot of ways. And one of the ways that we are different in is how we relate to watching movies. Now, me, I'm the kind of person, I watch a movie one time and I'm done. Uh, in great majority of cases, I don't want to go back and see it again. I've seen it once. That's all I need to see. And uh, that's kind of the way that I watch movies. Margaret, on the other hand, is very different. She would have a collection of movies that are her go-to movies that she likes to watch over and over and over again. It's perplexing to me, but she enjoys doing it. Um, And included in that collection of movies would be the Back to the Future series. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've come downstairs, walked into the family room, and Back to the Future is on the TV. And you may or may not be familiar with that movie series, but in the second movie of that series, one of the plot themes has the villain, whose name is Biff, going forward 30 years into the future, and when he's there, he gets a hold of a sports almanac. And a sports almanac is a book that kind of has a record of all the sporting events that have taken place over time, their outcome, the scores, everything related to them. And so he gets this sports almanac, and he brings it back 30 years in the past to his time. And it's not hard to imagine how he could take advantage of that knowledge of the future and profit from it. And so in the movie, he becomes one of the richest and most powerful men on the planet because of this knowledge he has of the future. Now, now wouldn't it be nice, wouldn't you like to have a book like that in your possession today? But you know, that movie theme, it kind of resonates in our hearts to some degree because as human beings, we are, we're intrigued and sometimes fascinated with the possibility of knowing the future. I mean, this is what makes palm readers and fortune tellers so popular in our day. I mean, people want to, they want to know what's going to happen. They want to see into the future. People want to know, who am I going to marry? What's going to happen with my relationship? You know, where am I going to live? Am I going to be successful? All those kinds of things. And, And even Christians as well, we can be captivated sometimes by the prophetic gifts that we think might tell us something about the future. And so as we come to these last six chapters in Daniel, which involve his visions of the future, 
I mean, these chapters have fascinated and intrigued believers for centuries. I mean, how do we understand these chapters? Are they like a sports almanac from the future, detailing specific future events that we can know today? Or is there some other way we should consider and apply these passages? And if so, what is that? Well, that's what we want to consider today. And so this week and next week, we're going to look at a couple of the major themes from these visions in chapter 7 through 12. And and today, I want to focus on Daniel's visions in chapter 7 and 8. And so let's take a moment and pray and ask God for his help before we dig into that. Lord, we come to you this morning, Lord, as we look at these chapters where you have given visions about things that have not yet taken place in many cases. And Lord, you have done that because you want them to serve and to be a means of blessing to your people. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that by your spirit, you would help me to communicate what you want to share about these chapters to your church today, and that you would fill this place with the presence of your spirit, Lord, that you might use your word this morning to be a blessing and encouragement, and to really help us to focus on what's important in the days we live. And so we ask you to do that, and we commit this time to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's begin by looking at these visions Daniel has, particularly the one we want to focus on is in chapter 7. So let me give you a little context as we come to chapter 7. Daniel is lying in his bed at night, it seems, and uh, this is during the reign of Belshazzar, who is king of Babylon. So if you've been tracking with us, the events of this chapter occur before chapter 5 and 6, where the writing on the wall ends Belshazzar's reign. And so he is lying in his bed, and he gets this vision from God as he's doing so. And so let's look at verses 2 through 8, which describe part of this vision. It says, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. 
And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Now, if you're like me, your head's spinning just as we read through that with all that's in those verses. And so in this vision, Daniel sees this picture of these four horrific, monstrous beasts that arise out of the chaos of the sea of humanity. Now, I love a good monster movie. I mean, ever since I've been a kid, I love monster movies. Um, one of my favorite movies was Jurassic Park. I have to confess, I've probably watched that a couple of times. But, um, but I love turning the sound system way up, and when that T-Rex screams or roars, and you can feel him walking or running in the movie, the power of that, I just love the effect of that. It just brings me into the reality of what something so awesome and great must have been like. But no movie can begin to compare with the terrifying nature of this vision that Daniel has. He is shaken by the power and terror of what he sees. In verse 15, it's, he says, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. That's a, an understatement. Verse 28, he says, as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed. See, this is like the nightmare of all nightmares. And so he asks one of the divine beings, probably an angel, that seems to be part of this vision, what, what this all means. And the angel tells him in verse 17, he says, these four great beasts are four kings who will arise out of the earth. These beasts represent four great kingdoms that will arise in the future from Daniel's time. And you know it probably shouldn't surprise us in one sense that these human kingdoms are represented by animal symbols. I mean, that's not unlike the way nations are represented today, right? I mean, the United States is the eagle, and Russia is the bear, and China is the dragon. And so this, this isn't so much of an unusual concept. And when we, when we read this vision, the other thing, if you've been tracking with us, that should strike you is how similar this vision is to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. It is literally the same thing from a little bit of a different perspective. But in this vision, there is something different about the fourth beast. In some way, it's different from the others. It's not only more powerful and terrifying and destructive, but it includes a picture of horns, which speaks of specific kings or rulers. And one particular ruler, referred to as the little horn, that speaks great and blasphemous things against God. I mean, he is the epitome of self-pride and self-glory. We see this in verses 23 through 25. It says, thus he said, the angel is speaking to Daniel, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms. And it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. 
As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So this little horn not only blasphemes and exalts himself above God, but he persecutes and terrorizes God's people. In verse 21, it says, and Daniel says, as I look, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. But where Nebuchadnezzar's dreams seem to view these beasts more from a perspective of how man sees things, this vision seems to see the same things from God's point of view. Because as Daniel is watching these great monsters arise and these things unfold, the scene suddenly shifts to the heavenly realms. And we see this in verses 9 through 12. Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So as Daniel looks, God comes on the scene and takes his seat on his heavenly throne. And he is seated. He is not pacing with worry or wringing his hands in concern over these bees. He's not taken by surprise by anything. He is perfectly in sovereign control of everything taking place on the earth. And if the vision of these beasts was terrifying and powerful, <clears throat> the majesty and power of his glory is far more impressive. His hair and clothing are perfectly white, speaking to his absolute purity and righteousness. <clears throat> Fire comes out from before him and around him, signifying his awesome power and holiness and judgment. And he is infinitely great in his glory and power, and he is matchless in his majesty. And a multitude too great to count serve him and gather before his throne. And there is no power and no kingdom that can stand against him. No matter how terrifying these monsters may seem to be in human terms, he is the ancient of days, the eternal sovereign king of the universe. 
and the books are opened and judgment falls on all of the greatest and most powerful of human kingdoms and rulers. That's what Daniel saw. So what did all this mean for those living in Daniel's day? And what does it say to us today? And that brings us to the second thing we want to look at this morning, and that's the message of Daniel's vision. And when we think about the message of Daniel's vision, I think the first thing we want to notice is that Daniel sees this vision of the heavenly court in living color and perfect clarity. See, God wants Daniel and us to have a clear view of the reality of the spiritual world and God's kingdom. Because, you know, I think the challenge that we often face in our just regular day-to-day lives is that just the spiritual realities in life can seem so distant, so hard to connect with in our day-to-day lives. God can seem distant from us and hard to see. And it can feel like the temptations and challenges of this world are, are so much more real compared to God's kingdom. I mean, this world is always in your face, and its reality presses in on us every day. While God and the spiritual realities of life, they just don't seem to do that. But God wants his people to know that they are every bit as real as anything you may experience in this world. He wants us to know that and persevere in faith, trusting in that truth, no matter how this world may press in on us. Because you see, the main focus of this vision is really, it's not on these terrifying beasts as terrible as they may appear. It's on the coming judgment of God on the powers of this age. It's on the ultimate victory of God over those powers and the sharing in that victory that will be ours as God's people. Three times it's stated in this chapter in verses 17 and 18. It says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And then again in verses 21 and 22, it says, As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. And then again in verse 27, it says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. See, that's the main focus of this vision. But what about 
the other details of this vision. What about these beasts and the rulers they refer to and the earthly parts of this vision that Daniel sees in the future? How, how are we to consider these things? What did they say to the people in Daniel's day and what's the application for us in our day? Now, in order to answer that, we need to understand a little bit about how prophecy works in the Old Testament. <clears throat> because these visions that Daniel has, they are prophetic in that they speak of things future, and they are a particular type of prophecy. They're prophecy that's referred to as apocalyptic visions or apop apocalyptic prophecy. <clears throat> And apocalyptic uh, visions or prophecy is a particular kind of prophecy that relates to things connected to the end of the age. And they're often uh, given in these uh, uh, symbolic, mysterious, perplexing kind of symbols and pictures like we see here that are confusing to us but are often kind of rooted in many different Old Testament concepts throughout the Bible. And these apocalyptic visions often have this kind of way of working where it's like you're given a, a, a picture of this and then they look at it from a different angle and then you get it from a different angle and you keep seeing these different angles of the same thing. So in this vision, Daniel sees these beasts from the standpoint of looking at the human kingdoms and then it shifts to the heavenly courtroom looking at the same thing. And the book of Revelation is very much like that too. One of the best ways, I think, to understand the book of Revelation is it's really a series of seven apocalyptic visions looking at the end of the end times, as God would define that, uh, just from different perspectives and different angles, each one kind of taking that out a, a little bit further. And when it comes to prophecy, I think sometimes people can just misunderstand how prophecy works in the Old Testament. They, there, there is often this way of thinking about prophecy, which I would call kind of the cannonball approach to prophecy. If, I could, if you could pull up the next slide. It's kind of this idea. It's like God gives a vision or a prophetic word to a prophet, and it's like the prophet speaks that, and it's like firing off a cannonball into the future somewhere. And somewhere out in the future, that cannonball is going to land, and that's when that prophecy or vision will be fulfilled. I think that's a, a lot of the times the way people look at something like the book of Revelation. But the problem with that way of thinking about prophecy is it often results in it being meaningless or irrelevant to the people that the prophet is writing to. And that's a problem because when God gives a prophetic word, it is first and foremost for the people of the prophet's day. And so we can't understand prophecy correctly in a way that robs it of its meaning and relevance for the people and the audience and the time that the prophet is writing or speaking. And so a more accurate way to understand Old Testament prophecy is what I might refer to as the stone in the pond approach. If we could pull up the next slide. 
So it's kind of like this. The prophet has a vision or speaks a prophetic word, and that's like throwing a stone into a pond. And where you throw that stone into the pond and it makes a splash, that's the relevance of that prophet's message or vision to the people of his day. And so it has to be relevant and meaningful to them. But when that stone hits the water, it not only makes a splash, but ripples begin to go out from that. And those ripples are like further and further and further fulfillments of that vision or prophetic word up until the point where there may is an ultimate fulfillment as things continue to ripple out over time. And so the prophet, he sees these spiritual realities and how they ripple out in greater and greater fulfillments in the future. And they may eventually reach a form of fulfillment that the prophet can't even see in his vision or prophecy at that time. And, you know, if you think about it, this is often how spiritual realities develop in the Bible over time. I mean, for example, we might take something like the concept of the temple in Scripture. And the temple is really just the idea of God wanting to dwell in, with his presence in the midst of his people. And so if we think about the Bible as to how it relates to the temple... You know, that when the sin kind of destroyed the communion and God's presence with his people in the garden, as God begins to work out a plan of redemption and he calls Israel to be his people, he tells them to build a tabernacle in the, in the wilderness where his presence will dwell among them. And as time goes on, that idea develops into the temple in Jerusalem where God's presence dwells there in the midst of his people. But then as the Bible continues on, we find something very interesting happen. Jesus comes and he says, I am the temple because Jesus was the presence of God dwelling among us. But then when Jesus dies, is crucified, and ascends into heaven, it changes again because now the church and the people of God are the temple because the Spirit of God dwells within the church and each one of us is God's people. And yet the final fulfillment of the temple will be when the new heavens and new earth come at the end of this age. And God's presence will dwell with his people in all of the fullness of it. And that's why if you read through Revelation, when it talks about the new heavens and new earth, the language that it uses is often very much similar to the description of the temple. And so that's how these ripples can kind of flow out over time in greater and greater kinds of fulfillment. And so the prophet, <clears throat> he sees these ripples of future fulfillment in his vision or prophecy, but he doesn't typically know the timing of when those things will be. And he often sees these ripples like they're kind of clumped together. In other words, it's kind of like, if you could pull up the next slide, it's like the prophet is looking at this range of mountain peaks way off in the distance. And to him, they all look like they're right together. But as you would get closer to those mountain peaks, you would find that there were great distances 
between them. And so we, we see this in these visions in Daniel. The language in Daniel blends things associated with the very end of the age with things that in our day seem to have already been fulfilled. And in Daniel 7 and 8, I think we see this like with regard to this little horn. This ruler who exalts himself above God in self-pride and self-glory, who blasphemes God and savagely persecutes the people of God, who the New Testament refers to as the Antichrist. And if we were to look at chapter 8, and we don't have time to get into the details of chapter 8 today, but chapter 8 details historical events related to the Medo-Persian and Greek empires that took place in the centuries following the time of Daniel so precisely that you can only conclude one of two things. Either the book of Daniel is a fraud and these things were written at least 400 years after Daniel's time by someone as historical rather than prophetic accounts? Or if that's not true, then if Daniel's story is genuine and they are prophetic, there can be no doubt that God knows and controls human history in every detail. Because in that chapter, the picture of this little horn ruler is used to describe in great detail things that occurred under a particular ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. And he was in power and his rule included the land of Palestine about 300 years after the time of Daniel. And he did just about everything that this little horn was prophesied to do. And yet some of the language used to describe him in chapter 8 blends into things that can only take place at the end of the age. And you know, I have no doubt that many of God's people during that time thought about Daniel and were convinced that that was the end. That God was coming in power at that time to rescue and restore his people. But it wasn't. It was just a ripple of partial fulfillment of that reality that is still yet to come. And so if we kind of get this idea, these ripples of further partial fulfillment, they produce this cyclical element to history where it looks like the prophet's vision is about to be fulfilled at times, but in reality, it's only another ripple of partial fulfillment, and the final fulfillment is still yet to come. Because really, throughout history, God's people have thought the end times were upon them. I mean, the New Testament believer saw Nero as that antichrist figure. In World War II, Christians thought Hitler was the little horn. And these rulers, they fulfilled many of the things Daniel prophesied about that person. But they were just a ripple on the pond of partial fulfillment. The final fulfillment is still yet to come. I think the uh, Apostle John speaks about this idea in 1 John 1.18. 
he says this. <clears throat> he says, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. John says, Antichrist is coming, but yet many Antichrists have already come. There are ripples of this fulfillment of this Antichrist idea. And for centuries, people have been using historical events to predict the time of the return of Christ and the end of this age. And you know what their track record is? Zero. And even in our day, I hear people saying, the end is upon us with COVID and the overall state of this world. And you know, maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. But if we understand this, then we see why the Bible tells us that no one knows when Jesus will come back and the end of this age will come. That's why Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, verses 36 and 44, he said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. See, any one of these prophetic ripples that seem to say to us, the end is near, might actually be the end. Or it might not. And so these ripples, they remind us to be ready because the end will come. So don't get caught up in trying to interpret and look for the specifics to understand when that end time will come. Daniel's visions, they're not intended to be a sports almanac that give us the details of future events before they take place. They're intended to exhort us to remain faithful and obedient to God despite the evils and challenges we may face in this fallen world as we wait patiently for God's timing to bring this evil age to an end. And so for the people of Daniel's day, <clears throat> these visions would have had great meaning and encouragement. They, these, if you think about it, they were decades into being exiled in Babylon. They're not in the land that God had promised them. Jerusalem's been destroyed. It seemed like God's promises had fallen to the ground. They were probably often treated poorly with many in slavery while they were in exile. They were no doubt struggling and in danger of losing hope. And Daniel's visions would have been greatly encouraging to them despite their present sufferings under the power of these beasts, the Babylonian kingdom. God will ultimately triumph. Their exile will come to an end as God promised. God's kingdom will prevail. God's people will be vindicated. They will inherit the incredible blessing of his eternal kingdom. And so they were to persevere in the difficult times in faithful obedience, keeping their eyes on the final outcome, which is absolutely certain. And I think in the same way, the application of these vision, it, it, they reach out to us here in 2022. 
Because, you know, the reality is we, we've been spoiled here in America. For many years, we've lived in a culture where the values of that culture have been very much in line with our Christian values and morals. But that's not the case in the rest of the world. And there are many places around the world where God's people suffer persecution and are being killed and imprisoned. And I would submit to you with the way the culture in this country is so rapidly changing these days that it may not be too long before that reality becomes something that's a lot closer to home. See, Daniel's visions, they tell us that God's people will continue to suffer persecution and difficulty in this world throughout this age. There's a war going on in the heavenlies between the powers of darkness and God's kingdom. Daniel speaks to this in the later chapters. And the conflicts and struggles in this world, they're a reflection of that war. And so don't be surprised when the reality of that comes your way. You see, we live in the days of the terrifying beasts in this vision. <clears throat> they kill, they destroy, they hoard the wealth of this age. They persecute and kill the people of God in various places and times. They commit genocide and horrible atrocities. They fly planes into buildings. They commit atrocities in wars like in Ukraine. They treat their employees like commodities to be used and discarded. But the heavenly throne room scene, it's coming. We know how the story ends. We know the saints will inherit the kingdom. We know who wins in the end. You know, as I thought about this, <clears throat> I was reminded when we were coming back from vacation a few weeks ago from Florida, and we were coming back on a Saturday, and I had taped the University of Maryland football game. I was hoping to watch it when we got back. And so I sit down on the plane, and two guys sit down beside me. And uh, sure enough, one of them is a Maryland fan, right? So as soon as he gets on the plane, he says, oh, yeah, you know, Maryland's down by a touchdown. So I said, okay, you know, what am I going to do with this guy, you know? Uh, so for the rest of the flight, assuming he can't get any updates while we're flying, but I know as soon as the plane lands... He's going to be checking his phone and talking to his buddy about what's going on. So I try to put my headphones on and not listen, but as uh, soon as I you know, have to get up and get my stuff, he looks at his phone and says, oh, man, and he says the score. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> so I watched the game, but I didn't watch it the same way. There was no concern, no whether we were behind or ahead. I wasn't worried about it because, because I knew the final score. I knew who won in the end. And see, we are to persevere in faithful obedience because we know the final score. And that's really the main point that we're to get from these visions. 
And that's really the big idea I think we get from these chapters. God's people are to persevere in faithful obedience, knowing that God's kingdom triumphs in the end. I think that's the message of these visions. God's people are to persevere in faithful obedience, knowing that God's kingdom triumphs in the end. But you know, this raises an important question for each of us listening today to consider. And that is, which kingdom am I a part of? Am I on the winning or losing team in this conflict? Am I among the saints who will inherit the kingdom? Or am I a member of the kingdoms of this world who will be judged and destroyed when the end of this age comes? You see, there are no other categories. And maybe you're listening and or sitting here today, and maybe you're not sure. And maybe you're wondering, how do I get into the kingdom of God so that I can know where I'll be when that day comes? Well, there's one part of Daniel's vision that we haven't looked at yet, and that's in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 7. So let's look at that now. After the heavenly throne courtroom scene where the books are open and the nations of the kingdoms are judged, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this one who is like a son of man, this son of man seems to be a combination of both human and divine traits. He is uniquely human in some way. In Daniel's vision, God who sits on the throne is depicted in human terms like a person. But there's something more to the humanity of this one who is described as like a son of man. He is human in a different way. But he is also divine as he comes riding on the clouds of heaven. He is the divine one who is in the likeness of a human being. And he is given all sovereignty and authority and dominion over this creation. <clears throat> His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And you know who this is must have been perplexing to Daniel. But we have the benefit of hindsight to understand who this is. I mean, this is Jesus Christ. This is the divine Son of God who came down from heaven into this world to become a human being, perfectly God and perfectly man. And he didn't come that time to receive the kingdom. He came to make a way for us to be part of the kingdom. And he did that by doing two things. He gave himself to die on a cross 
to pay for our sins and all the things that would disqualify us from being a part of that kingdom so that we could be forgiven, so he could take the judgment God would have for us. And secondly, he lived a life of perfect, righteous obedience before God so that he could then give that righteousness to us that would qualify us to share in all the blessings of that eternal kingdom. So how do you get into the kingdom? You get into it through faith, by putting your faith and trust in Jesus to be your Lord, to be your Savior, by submitting your life to him, by choosing to give yourself to trust and follow him as your Lord and Savior, and then all that he did becomes yours. And you become part of the kingdom. But that's the only way that you can get into the kingdom. I mean, Jesus himself said it in John 14, 6. We're speaking to his disciples. It says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So as you listen this morning, what kingdom are you in? And if you're not sure, you know you haven't put your trust in Jesus, God is inviting you now while there's still time, while it's not too late, to come. Come be part of the kingdom. Come put your trust in Jesus. Make him your Lord and Savior. So you can be a part of inheriting this incredible eternal kingdom God's talking about here. And for those of us who know we're a part of the God's kingdom, what do we do as we wait patiently for the time when Jesus returns and we inherit the promised eternal kingdom? Well, perhaps we can take our cue from how Daniel responded to these visions. If I could have the worship team come and join me. At the end of chapter 8, in verse eight, chapter 8, verse 27, Daniel says this, he says, and I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And I think there are three things we can briefly learn from Daniel's response. One, Daniel was deeply grieved and affected by the reality of human evil and the damage and destruction it caused. He was overcome by what he saw. He was appalled. He was literally sick for several days. And I think we too should be grieved and deeply moved by the suffering and damage we see around us in the lives of human beings in this broken, fallen world by the reality that people all around us are walking down a road that will one day lead to that heavenly courtroom scene. And we should be motivated by these things to do what we can to make a difference in people's lives that might change that. Secondly, after the initial effects of these visions passed, Daniel got up and went about the king's business. 
Daniel went about doing what he could where God had placed him to live out a life of faithful obedience to God. He sought to do his work to the best of his ability to be a blessing to those around him. He did his best to be a means of God's grace to others and to act for their good and not to get caught all caught up in the when and the what of the end times and how that'll play out. And I think we can learn from Daniel's response and do the same because we're to live out our lives as faith in faithful obedience as exiles in this world, seeking to do good and be a blessing to those around us. And then thirdly, Daniel had to be comfortable living with a partial understanding of these things. He understood some things from these visions, but there was much that he didn't understand. And 2,500 years later, there's still much we do not know about how things related to the end of this age will unfold. And we need to be comfortable living with that partial understanding. See, Daniel isn't intended to be a future sports almanac where we can pinpoint when and how the end times will unfold. But it is intended to let us know the final score when all is said and done. We know God triumphs in the end. We know we will share in that victory. We know the saints will inherit the kingdom for all eternity. Evil and darkness, they're going to continue throughout this age. There will be conflicts, trials, suffering at times. Kingdoms will rise and fall and destroy and oppress humanity. But as God's people, we're to fix our eyes on the final, ultimate outcome that is certain to come. See, God's message to his people, it hasn't changed in the 2,500 years since Daniel lived. God's people are to persevere in faithful obedience, knowing that God's kingdom triumphs in the end. So let's close by standing and singing this song and just declaring and giving praise to the one who, when he came the first time, came as a lamb to be sacrificed on our behalf. But in his coming again, he will come as the lion who has all dominion and glory and power and whose kingdom will never end.